Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman, and I am Deputy Vice President for Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I am pleased to introduce our speaker for today's interview. William Kirby is Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration, T.M. Chang Professor of China Studies, and University Distinguished Service Professor at Harvard University. His wonderful new book, Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China has recently been published by Harvard University Press. Thanks so much, Bill, for joining us today. Margot, it's a great pleasure to be with you and with our larger audience. Since most people tuning into the interview will not yet have read your book, please give us a quick overview of your major points. Well, you know, we all... Anyone who's been to a college or university is part of the world of universities, and yet the world of modern universities, with which we are largely associated, you know, universities are very old, more than a millennium old, but the modern research university is a little more than 200 years old. It's born in Germany in the early 19th century, and German universities, particularly the University of Berlin, come to define what a university, a, particularly a research university, is. And it becomes, so Germany is the unquestioned leader of the 19th century. Uh, and indeed, as late as maybe the 1920s, if we had university rankings of the kind we have today, eight of the top 10 universities in the world would have been German, the other two, Oxford and Cambridge. But the 20th century is in many ways, becomes an American century, particularly after the Second World War in which the United States and its leading institutions come to define what is excellence in higher education. And just as the Germans were magnets for talent, uh, people from all over the world studying in Germany in the 19th century and early 20th, the United States is the place that attracts so much of the world's uh, young uh, and experienced talent to its shores and to its universities. And yet the United States is also has made, the United States also has major issues in higher education. Universities are not particularly popular politically, and 44 out of 50 American states are defunding public higher education in the United States. And as the United States, if it does, isn't stagnating, is certainly in danger of decline, China uh, is pouring enormous resources into its higher education sector. And if anyone is poised to lead the 21st century in higher education, it may well be China. Right now, higher education is one industry in which the United States is still number one. Question to be asked in this book is, is that really going to be the case 20, 30, or 40 years from now? What are the hallmarks of a leading institution of higher education in the 21st century? What are the necessary components? Great question. Those components are actually shockingly similar to those that were defined in the first great research university, the University of Berlin. 
the idea that a university exists to advance knowledge, not simply to pass it on, that is to create knowledge. That was new in 1810 when the University of Berlin was founded. Uh, a university uh, is meant to bring students and faculty together in the creation of talent, the unity of teaching and research. The central part of a university defined then ought to be what we would call today the college or faculty of arts and sciences uh, because it was believed then and the greatest universities in the world still believe it today that a liberal education an education that not a, not liberal as in liberal conservative but a liberal education that liberates people from preconceived notions uh, and creates people who are independent of mind who know what they don't know and how to find it out uh, this is central to an educated citizenry. And finally, governance. Uh, a university, even if state-funded, a great university needs to have the autonomy to set its own standards uh, to decide what the next frontiers of knowledge are to be and not to have them dictated to it by the state. That answer raises all kinds of questions, but I will try to stick to the main ones. Since we're the National Committee on US-China Relations, we'll focus on developments in higher education in the United States and China. But let's start with a question about German higher ed. And you alluded to this in your opening comments, but why did you begin there? There is, for example, a long tradition of excellent higher education in England, as you mentioned, Oxford and Cambridge, why didn't you choose England as your first model of modern higher education? I feel like Gilbert and Sullivan. Yeah, no, no, no. It's a great, it's a great question because it's a book that doesn't deal with two of the greatest and enduringly great institutions on earth, which are Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, and Oxford and Cambridge, you know, my my college, my university, Harvard, was founded by a graduate of Cambridge University, and American colleges uh, in the first several centuries of collegiate life in the United States largely emulated uh, English collegiate life as well. Uh, Harvard called itself a university, but really it was an undergraduate college uh, with a, a few small professional schools gradually uh, added on to it. What distinguishes the German scene was the creation of this al the altogether new idea that a university's purpose should be research, should be Wissenschaft, should be the creation of knowledge and the advancement of science, however science is defined. Could be political science, could be historical science, could be the science of literary analysis or the science of physics. This is new in the early 19th century and Oxford and Cambridge adopt German models of research as they advance and all the great American universities, which really become universities worthy of the name, take on German models of education. Hopkins and Chicago are explicitly founded on German models. Stanford University, I don't know if you know, Margot, maybe have you, you've been to Stanford? Yes. Okay, do you know what the motto of Stanford University is? I do not. It's in German. It's called Die Luft der Freiheit weht, the wind of freedom blows. And Harvard becomes you know, a major university worthy of the name only by sending many of its faculty 
uh, and uh, prospective faculty to Germany for their education. In the late 19th century, if you wanted to have a successful career in many fields in the United States, you went to Germany for your doctorate. Just as today, young Chinese who want to make their mark in China come first to the United States or to Europe for their, for their doctorates. But you know, things change, times change. And I began working on this book in, in 2010, or thinking about this book in 2010, not really working on it yet, uh, when I attended the 200th anniversary of the University of Berlin, the original model was the name of that conference on the university. Uh, and the president of the what is now called the Humboldt University, the successor to the Berlin, University of Berlin, welcomed us all by saying, and I quote, nobody would take my university as a model for anything today. And it shows you how the tectonic plates of higher education shift over time. The Germans led, then are displaced uh, by their own actions in part, and then by the Americans. Uh, and uh, the Chinese now are moving fast up these global rankings that everyone is so obsessed with. Really fascinating. You profile three very different American universities, Harvard, Berkeley, and Duke. Why did you choose them? And would you say that they are now in 2022 global leaders in higher education? I would say that they are certainly among the global leaders in higher education, these three American universities. And I chose them for rather different reasons. I know them all well, Harvard obviously a bit more, much more than the other two. Uh, but I chose Harvard as the oldest American university in some sense, uh, historically, the model American university, even though it has seldom served as a successful model for emulation. Uh, and it's the oldest and largest, and certainly the uh, most famous private university in the United States, uh, with a reputation that grows enormously greater the farther away you are from Cambridge, Massachusetts. <laughs> And I chose Berkeley because Berkeley is the greatest, uh, and the I would say Berkeley is the flagship of the greatest system of public higher education in the United States, and for a time the greatest system of public higher education in the world, the University of California system, uh, a university founded by faculty from Yale who are educated in Germany, but to be a uh, to start a new type of institution. Uh, the public university system, uh, which has been so important in the history of higher education uh, in the United States. Uh, and yet Berkeley is an example. You know, both Berkeley and Harvard have their challenges. Harvard has the challenge of its history. It has the challenge of seeking to do more better than almost any other university, not an easy task. And it also has the challenge uh, of what the former Dean of Yale College and former president of Duke University, Richard Broadhead calls, as he was speaking of Yale, but you could apply it to Harvard, the inertia of excellence. Things are so good, how do you possibly get better? Uh, institutions in that situation are seldom first movers today. Berkeley has the great challenge of the defunding of public higher education. And it is perhaps the uh, most scary chapter in this book, 
when you see how this wonderful and great magnificent university was brought nearly to its knees uh, by a series uh, of massive cuts to its budget, but really a series of massive cuts in support to the concept of public higher education in the greatest system of public higher education in the United States. Duke, I argue, is the fastest growing in quality as, uh, of American research universities, the most self-consciously international, uh, the youngest of these three, uh, and a remarkable institution that more than, much more than Harvard, and certainly more than Berkeley, actually plans very assiduously for its future. You know, there's a moment in the book where I, where I talk about how it was that Richard Broadhead, the longtime dean of Yale College, went to Duke. And why did he go to Duke? Uh, the Yale Daily News had one take on it. They said, the student newspaper wrote, gee, we thought Dean Broadhead was married to Yale. Now we learn he has left us for someone younger and more athletic. Well, he certainly did go to a more athletic university, but also to one that was nimbler uh, and less risk averse to the more famous universities to the north, such as Yale and Harvard. It was very striking reading your description of Duke's history of planning, which the other two American universities seem to lack in many ways, certainly in a centralized sense. Harvard, when I went there to work years ago, it was the first time I heard each tub on its own bottom very decentralized institution. Harvard is a radically decentralized institution, and it's one of the most difficult institutions probably to, to lead. Uh, the challenges of a Harvard president are in many ways much greater than those of many others because one can lead at best by indirection, because all, not all, but almost all of the money is in the hands of the deans of the schools. Um, when I was dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, my budget would have been maybe 20 times that of the president or more. Um, and that would, and the dean of the School of Business or the dean of the law school or the dean of the medical, these four large schools are an enormous part uh, of the resources and direction of Harvard. And each school is not only a tub on its own bottom in physical sense, but has enormous autonomy in setting its own goals. But the university as a whole seems to have very little capacity for planning across these tubs. Every president has tried in recent decades to do this. Uh, Neil Rudenstein uh, began the process of trying to re-knit Harvard together. Drew Faust talked about one Harvard uh, and President Larry Bacco has done an excellent job of bringing the university together in the great crisis of COVID. Uh, and yet it remains a place that is defined really more by its separate parts than by the whole. Uh, so Duke, meanwhile, you know, Duke was the campus for anybody who was watching this who's been to Duke, you know the wonderful neo-Gothic campus uh, uh, of Duke University given by James B. Duke uh, in the 1930s. And the man who did more to addict Americans and Chinese to nicotine than anybody else. 
uh, made a lot of money in the process, a lot of which goes then to Duke. Uh, they built a neo-Gothic campus, a beautiful neo-Gothic, but sometime in the 1950s, they woke up to the fact that they looked like a great university, but they knew they were not. And how did they become one in the, in the segregated South of the 1950s? It's an extraordinary story of continuously excellent or largely continuously excellent leadership uh, and commitment over many, many decades which is rare in the history of higher education anywhere. Let's turn to the Chinese institutions. You look at Tsinghua, Nanjing, and the University of Hong Kong. Why those three? And what do they tell us about China's ambitions for higher education today and into the future? Well, Tsinghua is in many ways, you know, today often deemed to be with Peking University, you know, one of the two leading universities in China. Those at Tsinghua think that they are the leader, and of course those at Beida think that they are the leader. But Tsinghua has this fascinating history founded with returned American money from the Boxer Indemnity, from the Boxer War of 1900, as a prep school founded in 1911, as a prep school to send young Chinese to the United States, and with extraordinary impact, in fact, on the individuals that they send to the United States. It becomes a comprehensive university and in many ways the leading research university in China by the 1930s as National Tsinghua University. Uh, and there's a, almost a direct lineage actually with, uh, with Harvard in this regard. My teacher in Chinese history, John Fairbank, learned his Chinese history at Tsinghua University in the 1930s. Uh, Tsinghua University is the leader of what you might call the university's resistance to the Japanese during the war. Uh, and its president really is the mover behind the founding of National Southwest University, uh, the place to which the leading universities retreat uh, in Southwest China during the period of Japanese occupation of Eastern China. Uh, it becomes a Soviet-style polytech in the 50s. It becomes a wasteland academically during the Cultural Revolution, but it has been revived as a great comprehensive university today in the arts as well as in the sciences, and of course in engineering. And my close association with Tsinghua comes from uh, working to establish what is now the Schwarzman Scholars Program at Tsinghua University, which is aimed to be the Rhodes Scholarship of the 21st century. Uh, think of it this way. It's really quite a remarkable, thing. Uh, a little more than a century ago, Tsinghua University exists to send young Chinese away. Now, part of its mission is to bring the best and the brightest of the world, people who would otherwise be Rhodes Scholars, to Tsinghua, to China. And think of the ambition here. And no place in, that I have studied is more ambitious than Tsinghua. Think of the ambition. Uh, the best and the brightest in the world in the future, they're not going to want to go to England. Why should you go and get a Rhodes at a cold, rainy, foggy, self-isolating island off the coast of Europe when you can go to Beijing uh, with blue sky days, maybe every other day, uh, and uh, be part of the world's 
rising power. Nanjing, Nanjing University, if I'll just say very briefly, um, is, is quite a different story, just like the history of Nanjing is quite different from Beijing. But Nanjing University has many predecessors, but the most important one of which was called National Central University, established by Chiang Kai-shek in the 1930s as the national university in that time and place. And it's modeled very explicitly on the University of Berlin. And you know it's modeled on Berlin because there's a Brandenburg Gate welcoming you onto the campus. Uh, but Nanjing University is a university today uh, that, like many Chinese universities, extraordinary students, fantastic faculty, but under great and greater and greater political pressure by the Chinese regime. Tsinghua and Beida are under this to some degree as well, but they're more insulated as the two elite universities. But the need to show obedience to the party, uh, a, the need uh, to uh, declare uh, the centrality of Xi Jinping thought and Marxism and Leninism uh, in the undergraduate curriculum. This has become more and more pronounced in recent years at Nanjing University, and it is a great warning sign for the future uh, of, that, of that place. Uh, it is a, just losing my train of thought here for a second, uh, but it is, um, uh, so, so Nanjing University, uh, a place with a history as long as, uh, you know, its roots for well more than a century is one of the great leading five universities of China today, uh, but it's emblematic of the political pressures uh, to, for example, uh, study, Chinese history simply according to the history of the Communist Party. Uh, and my worry about a place like Nanda uh, and other Chinese universities uh, that are less insulated from political winds is that great universities such as this will end up graduating two types of graduates, cynics or opportunists. Cynics because they know what they are learning may not be true, but they have to recite it anyway, or opportunists who use this as a means of getting ahead in the party and in their lives after college. That is not good enough for the great talent that comes to Chinese universities today. And what about the University of Hong Kong? So when I began this project, the University of Hong Kong, I chose because it is the one it is because it is the greatest Chinese uni research university, not yet under the Chinese Communist Party. Of course, things have changed a lot since I began this project. And I think uh, the governance structure of, you know, again, the centrality of governance for the excellence of a university is very, very important. Uh, mainland Chinese universities have the challenge of having both presidents and party secretaries. Sometimes, just as at Tsinghua, you can have extraordinary party secretaries who protect the university more than anything else uh, and assist its rise. Other times you have, as has been the case at Nanjing and elsewhere, party secretaries whose job it is to enforce political discipline. 
rather than academic excellence. A form of protection, perhaps, but not necessarily a positive one. Hong Kong University has a great history of academic freedom uh, and of extraordinary institutional autonomy. This is why it rose to be among the top 20 universities in the world uh, as late as the, as the early uh, 21st century. But it has been battered significantly as other Chinese universities have uh, by the intrusions of first Hong Kong's own government and now by a, the institution of national security laws in China that have not had a full effect yet on Hong Kong's universities, but are very likely to have a largely detrimental one on their capacity to lead. And building on that, the issue of academic freedom and people build, being willing to speak openly, I noticed from reading the endnotes that a lot of your interviews starting around, I think, 2015, were conducted in person in China and in Hong Kong. Could you talk about access? Were people willing to talk with you? How open were they about the challenges they faced? And if you'd started your, your research for the China portion of the book five years later than you did, how would the process have differed? Well, it's a great question. People were extraordinarily open and very helpful to me in every, all three of these universities, uh, from presidents to deans to faculty to students, just extraordinarily open. And so I had no difficulty whatsoever. I was able, you know, not perfectly, archival access in China is imperfect at best in the best of times, uh, but I did work uh, in the archives of all three of these universities. And um, I found no impediments uh, to uh, what I wished to do. Whether that would be the case today, I am not so sure. I think it would be the case at Tsinghua. Uh, might be rather more guarded uh, by, by friends at Nanda, particularly if they read the chapter. Uh, and at Hong Kong, I, I'm rather quite convinced it would be a much less open moment than it was uh, then. Um, I hope that won't be the case. Uh, there's, you know, Hong Kong universities still have extraordinarily higher levels uh, of autonomy in what they can teach and how they can teach than mainland universities. The question is how long uh, that will last. But at the end of the day, and this is actually a really important point, I hadn't thought of it in this way, but the values of the leaders of Chinese universities and of the faculty and of the students are much, much closer to those of American university leaders, faculty and students and European ones than they are different. They are part of this world of universities that has learned one from another. And when Nanjing University uh, said with Renmin University, several months ago that they wanted to withdraw from the global rankings to pursue what they called a an education with Chinese characteristics. First of all, it's notable that no other university has followed them. 
they are under great political pressure uh, to do this. Xi Jinping, President Xi, had just visited Renmin University uh, when this announcement uh, shortly thereafter came out. Uh, but this is not the world of the future of Chinese universities if their leaders have any say in it. A really important point. We've seen clearly a rise of nationalism in both the United States and China in recent years, and in some ways a drawing inward. What do these trends and the increasing tension in the overall US-China relationship portend for higher education in and between both countries? Wither exchange. Yeah, well, it's bad news for both of us. It's bad news for the United States and it's bad news for China. This American system of higher education really in the late 20th and early 21st century is its greatness is predicated upon bringing the best talent from around the world to our institutions. And we do this in particular in our graduate schools. Uh, and to the degree that we limit or find that, it is, that access is otherwise limited for international students to attend American universities, uh, we immiserate ourselves uh, intellectually. And that talent will go elsewhere. Uh, President Xi Jinping told me in a meeting, it was a meeting not just with me, but with Harvard's President Baca, that he told Donald Trump that Trump said to Trump, if you limit the students coming to the United States, you are giving a great gift to Europe. And China is not limiting students so much from going abroad, but the number of, uh, of student visas being granted, at least in the first half uh, of this year, if I'm not mistaken, is about half of what it was in the first half of 2019. Uh, and that presumably is our, the result of parents and students making different choices under the political circumstances of the moment. And some Chinese feeling not welcome or safe in the United States. And American colleges, there are American colleges that uh, seek to make uh, what I would call political points by canceling their programs with China. Cornell University, for example, canceled a program uh, with China. I, uh, I believe it was on labor law, if I'm not mistaken, uh, because uh, uh, the Renmin University was with Renmin University because Renmin University had expelled several students who had started independent Marxist study groups who went off and read the real Marx, not the textbook Marx, and started trade unions in sweatshops, things like that, very wonderful things for actually. Um, but Cornell's, the people who were behind that had no idea how long and hard the leadership of Renda tried to protect those students and how much pride the leadership of all Chinese universities who had such activist student groups, how much pride they had in these students. So we hurt very often the people we mean, uh, who we hurt very often the people who most share our values when we get up on our high horse, sanction this and sanction that, uh, and disassociate ourselves from individuals who would like and need our support. 
we're running out of time, but I do have one more question sure. I'd like to ask. Um, how has the book been received in China or is it too early to tell? Do you expect it to be translated into Chinese and might it cause trouble for you? At Harvard too, I may add. It might you cause don't trouble. pull any punches in your chapter on Harvard. Yes, it might cause me more trouble at Harvard than in than in China. Uh, you know, I you know I I certainly I am no China basher. I'm, I'm I'm critical of those things that I find wanting in all three of these areas. Uh, but I am also a great admirer of the way in which these three countries uh, have advanced higher education in rather different ways, and the enormous investment of China in higher education uh, today. The, uh, it will be translated and it's being translated right now in Taiwan, uh, but it is likely to be translated also in mainland China. Um, and right now we are working on a contract to, to have that done. And so I very much look forward to that. And I very much look forward to speaking about it and, and to debating Chinese colleagues about this or that point of view that I have, uh, uh, because it, watching all these things from afar and, uh, and writing about them from a distance, even though I visited them all quite assiduously over the years, uh, nevertheless, there is always more for me to learn. Uh, and the story of universities in China and globally, it's a moving target. So I think this is, but in some sense, nothing is more important for the future these few things are more important for the future of the United States and China than our own investment in higher education. No country has been a leader of the world really since the 17th century without also being a leader in education and culture. Think of France in the 17th and 18th century. Think of Britain and Germany in the 19th century, the United States uh, in the 20th century. All of these have been global leaders, but also ones who set standards in education, the standards that others will wish to follow. This is China's opportunity, but also China's challenge in the 21st century. And the last thing I will say, Margo, is that no country, no country has a longer history of investment in one form or another in education millennia of it than China. It's different today in a world of modern universities, but Chinese universities you know, have grown up over the last 120 years. They've survived the Qing, they've survived the warlords, they survived Chiang Kai-shek, they even survived Mao Zedong, and they will survive uh, the current political scene as well. Universities outlast in uh, administrations and outlast regimes. And so I think the future of Chinese universities is inevitably extraordinarily bright. And I think that our future is brighter to the degree that we cooperate with them. I hope you're right. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Bill, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us today. I could go on and on asking you questions. 
I'd also like to thank the National Committee staff behind the scenes who've made today's interview possible. We hope those who have tuned in found the interview interesting and informative, and that you will join us for future National Committee programming. Thanks again, and goodbye. Thank you so much, Margo, and thank you all. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.